Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with John Bewin. John, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. You? Very good. Uh, and also very curious. When last we spoke, you had come up with something to do. You'd also before that talk, and actually you went through a couple things before hitting on one. And I wonder if we could start by, do you remember when I said what the environment means to you? What that was what the, the seed was to prompt what you actually did. Do you remember what you talked about? Well, I, I believe I talked about, um, uh, are you referring to, I think I talked about taking walks in the woods. Yeah. And the experience of being among the trees and the other natural things. Is that, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Cause if I don't, ask people about that, then they tend to talk about the experience that they've had. And ultimately, this is acting on values, acting on meaning. And so I like to refresh that. Also, the listeners might have, it might have been a month or so since they've, they listened to the first episode as well. If it goes well, then the actions manifest the values. It doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do, do you remember where that led? What are you committed to? Well, I wonder. So, so actually, I don't. But uh, I'm going to maybe guess, or or even just um, say what if if I think about. I remember talking and waxing a little bit about what walking in the woods means to me, and and how, um, for one thing, it's a time when I deliberately detach from any screens or any technologies or any gadgets. <laughs> or any tech and there's it has to do with presence right with being being in the present moment and being where i am so i wonder and then this is just actually as i say i don't remember what i said or how we, i linked that with the, my plan but but um the thing that i propose to do which is to close my laptop earlier in the evening a few nights a week Mm-hmm. rather than sitting in bed with it, you know, in front of me until basically until I turn the lights out, which is sometimes, you know, what I do more often than not, that that might've been, you know, that there might've been a commonality there that it was about, you know, ceasing watching the Sopranos or whatever it is I'm watching and, um, and doing something either more directly, uh, with my wife or, you know, picking up a book or something, which at least is, um, you know, which is a, a, let's, let's say an analog experience uh, as opposed to a digital one. So I don't know. I'm, I'm actually trying to speculate on what I, what I may have said or how I might've linked those two things. Remind me. <laughs> yeah. I remember there being a lot of awe and wonder and being a part of this connection to nature. Yes. And, and then actually when I asked you, it took you a while when I said, when I invited you to think of something to do to act on it. Cause first you were talking about bicycling or, and flying was a big thing of a, a struggle that you're, uh, but the biking would have required buying, I think a bike or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the flying was a big thing that I might've also thought, I, I probably thought, I forget if I said, um, that's maybe something to work up to. Mm-hmm. I think you felt that way. It is. It is. I mean, it's something that um, absolutely that I take very seriously. And and uh, for example, it's funny. My um, we had a family get together for a niece's wedding in Minnesota, where I'm from. And uh, my kids, who are in their twenties, also each flew in from other cities. And then my daughter, uh, her flight was canceled. One of her flights was canceled. She was flying back from Minneapolis to Austin, Texas, and her connecting flight from Dallas was canceled. So she jumped on a bus Mm -hmm. rather than wait for the next flight, which was not going to be until the next day. And I texted to my kids, you know, we all need to start taking buses and trains. Um, And everybody sort of said, yeah, right. You know, and uh, (laughs) so that does reflect my you know, I, I'm very serious about looking for opportunities to not fly. Let's put it that. And I don't fly. I, these days, I don't fly. There have been times in my life when I've flown an average of once a month, maybe. I fly much less often than that um, in recent years. And obviously, didn't fly for two solid years during the pandemic. 
and it's I don't travel as much for work and it's it's they're fewer and far farther between generally although I have take several taken several flights this summer so I'm I am yes it's very much on my agenda to look for alternatives or to not fly when I when I really don't have to I talked to a lot of people about flying and not flying and it's almost um a reflexive like live wire for most people they will not touch it i'm sorry most people don't fly something like 80 percent of people never fly something like 10 percent of people fly internationally so anyone who flies more than once a year or internationally they're part of this very rarefied group of people yeah. and people are quick to point out that it's relative to all pollution it's not that much but it's very few people doing it so yeah for people who fly it tends to be their greatest source of pollution yes now but you're you're approaching it very differently because you're I mean, it's rare that I come across someone speaking as you do of, I want to do something about this. I recognize a problem. Uh, even the being torn about it is unusual in my experience. Mm-hmm. There may be all sorts of selection effects in whom I'm talking to and so forth. But, and then I also can't help but think of taking a bus in Texas because I took the train to LA and back once. And on the way back, I went through the Southern route through Texas and I stayed with a friend and I took the bus I took the train, I bought the train ticket the whole way, but I took the bus from Houston to Atlanta because I knew I wanted to stop off in New Orleans and get a po'boy. And the only hours <laughs> it would work, I had to take a bus. So buses have a lot less um, mobility. You can't move around in them. You know, you're stuck in that seat. Right. And like every stop, everyone gets off, smokes a cigarette. They all get back on again as if like the cigarette smoke stays outside and not lingers on their clothing. Yeah. So, but the po'boy was worth it. Right. <laughs> right. So I'm curious, I hope to keep in touch with you about how the flying evolves. I'll say that in my experience, when I challenged myself to go for the year without flying, I thought it was going to be awful. And only by the doing and committing could I find replacements Mm. that more than replaced and I, I found preferable. But that was an experiential learning that I could not have done through reading or writing or thinking. Yeah without making the commitment and then, and then doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Then we eventually settled on. So what did you commit to? Yeah. You said it before, but do you mind saying it again? Yes. That I would close my laptop at 8 PM, uh, three nights a week. And as I said, this is something that, um, that I've tried to do before. Mm-hmm. And, um, and have not stuck with it. I'm kind of an addict. Mm-hmm. And so it, it just in that moment, I thought, okay, well, I can do this for a month for sure. So I did. And, and I think I, I don't remember what I said about which evenings I might've said, maybe I'll try Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I ended up deciding on Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, mm-hmm. somewhat arbitrarily, arbitrarily, but also because that leaves Friday movie night open because my wife and I often, you know, watch movies Friday night or whatever. So, mm-hmm. so that's what I did. And uh, yeah, four weeks and, and I did that. And as a result, I got a lot more reading done. That was the main result, which I'm happy about. <laughs> I remember there's an, there's an issue about the wife because she likes watching too. And yeah. that's one of the main things is family. And, and if you're travels, the other big one, that if you, if you commit to something, but the other person isn't there to commit, then sometimes there can be frictions. How did things work out there? Well, it's true. I was, it was ending up. So, so it just happens too. And sometimes we are watching the same thing. Sometimes we're not, but in this case, we had fairly recently, finally, after all these years got started on the Sopranos and we're really enjoying it. And it's, you know, it's six seasons and it's hours and hours of television. And we've been watching that. So we, we might watch easily a couple of episodes in, in an evening. But but on those evenings, you know, eight o'clock, it's you know, it's one episode after dinner, and then I gotta I gotta check out. So yeah, it, she was chill about it, but she said, you know, you're this is affecting me too, and you didn't I didn't sign up for this, and but she said it in a good natured way, and it was okay. So she's not serving you with papers. <laughs> yeah, nothing too serious. It reminds me of I, I haven't watched The Sopranos, and I was in business school when it was on, and I remember a professor once 
was saying like, like last night on Sopranos and like suddenly the whole class, like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't tell us. <laughs> yeah. 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 So can you tell me more? Like, what was the, uh, was it hard? Was it easy? Was it, um, were you looking forward to things? Were you not looking like, were you looking forward to reading more? Were you looking forward to, were, were there empty spots? Like, were you like, Oh, I really don't watch. You know, I, it was okay. I, I guess I would say that usually I had sort of mixed feelings at that moment when, you know, we finished the episode around eight and I said, okay, that's, I'm, I'm out and close the close lap up laptop and pick up one of the books on my bed stand next to me and put on my reading glasses and, you know, and read for a couple hours instead of uh, watching whatever it was I would have done. Or, you know, just to be clear, it's not that we just, or in my case, sit there and watch TV shows or whatever. I also um, more commonly actually will just be like scrolling through Twitter, you know, looking at news of the day that I didn't have time to read during the day. If something's happened, I'll go to the New York times or the Washington post or other news sources and read about stuff or look at politics. And, you know, I'm kind of a junkie about all that stuff, what's going on in the world, the, the various investigations into you know, hoping there would be some accountability for various people <laughs> about mm-hmm. things that have happened in this country lately. And uh, anyway, I have all these things that I'm sort of invested in. And, and I and I and obviously the, the laptop is a window into anything I want to explore or find out. And then there's also just that. You know, that's sort of the little dopamine hits that come with okay, I can go back to the Washington Post site and see if there's something I haven't read and, oh, I want to read that or going back to Twitter and seeing that I have a notification. And right. So, so I can sit there very easily with the laptop open and have, have the hours of the evening pass, whether or not I'm watching a TV show with my wife or by myself or whatever. So, so that's the more, more normal pattern. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so I was just putting all that down for those three evenings a week and reading. And I have made this um, resolution before, uh, not so much from the standpoint of, I don't want to use that little bit more electricity that I'm using from having my laptop open, but more just, I want to read more. I used to read more. Now I've gotten like so many people sucked into these, these electronic, you know, force sources of stuff. And, um, and I do a lot of time, actually, for the last number of years, probably the bulk of my reading, if I'm literally sitting there reading a book has been for work, because I do these deeply researched podcast series. And, and oftentimes, there's a, there's quite a bit of reading to be done for it. So at this moment, I have one book like that that's that's related to the to a podcast series that I'm researching and then another book that's really not it's actually a, a nonfiction book a, a biography really of Laura Ingalls Wilder of all things and I can't even remember how I acquired this book it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book from a few years ago I'm from Minnesota I don't have a particular fascination with Laura Ingalls Wilder but I I grabbed that book a while ago and started and I'm enjoying it a lot it's utterly fascinating to me so those I've been sort of going back and forth between those books with my my evening reading as a result of this resolution. It's been good. It's been really felt good to do it, to get more reading done. I can't help but comment since you're reading about something related to your where you grew up. My mom is from South Dakota, so Laura Ingalls Wilder was big too. Yes. But I was have do you know the author Matt Johnson? He I just read his book, Loving Day. Oh. Okay. And yeah, it was, I mean, he grew up, he, he writes this book about Germantown, Philadelphia, where I grew up like two blocks from where I grew up. Mm. And it's, I mean, I thought about a lot listening to scene on radio to uh, seeing whiteness because I grew up as a, a black, a white boy in a virtually all black neighborhood. Mm. And he was a light skinned black. His uh, mother was black. His father was Irish. Yeah. And he described this book as, as his, coming out as biracial mm-hmm. and so it's really a lot of interweaving of stuff that your podcast went into a lot and um 
but that's an aside because I, uh, you, you, there are a couple of words that you said, you said junkie, you said addiction, you said little dopamine hits. Yeah. And I wonder if there was some reflection on that experience. Like, did you, did you think about that? Did you notice that? Did that become part of the experience? Noticing that I, I'm I'm very familiar with those things. This is the, I, I didn't particularly need any revelations about that. I, it's it's uh, something I've known for some time that that it's become a kind of habit. I feel like I mean I get I have this conversation with my wife and I and I sometimes kind of tried to defend myself. Um. That, that that isn't all that's going on, right? I mean, there are actually are things that I care about that I'm, that I'm reading about. There are things that I learned from, from scroll, scrolling through Twitter. It leads me to things that are important either in my work or, or in my personal interests, which, which are very intertwined and, and overlapping, um, you know, so that that's not, to me, it's not a simple matter of, Oh, this is terrible. I wish I could stop doing these things, but I'm addicted. It's more like um, <laughs> it's both, right? It's so, so that so that I I'm, I recognize that there are I recognize that, for example, that you know the twelfth time that I go back and forth between my email and Twitter and the newspaper or whatever to see if there's something new there. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that that there's that little there's that little mechanism where I'm looking for some, for I'm looking for the dopamine hit. I'm looking for that, you know, there's that, there's a, that that's functioning. Um, and yeah, that's, it's not news to me. So yeah, I mean, uh, sure. I was aware of it, but it was also, I felt quite capable of saying, okay, that's done for this evening. And now I'm going to read and being able to read them for two or three hours. That was not, I didn't find it particularly hard to do that. That's what I was wondering about is the, if I'm not sure if this was a month was longer or shorter than you were able or not able to do it before. But if, if the longer you went, not just recognizing there was an addition, but if going off of it and maybe I'm speaking a little too glibly, but if, if going off of it led to any realizations or, or recognitions. Well, I think I, I could certainly, um, I could certainly do it. I mean, I could certainly do this uh, in an ongoing way. Whether I will, it, it may actually, um, I mean, I think I will, I will try to, it, it may not be as regimented in the sense that these are the three nights and because I told Josh I'm going to do it, <laughs> I have to, uh-huh. you know, but, um, but it's been, it's been satisfying. There's, there's been a plus in the in the sense of just having got more reading done, which is valuable to me, um, so that I that I think I will try to continue and who knows maybe build on it. I, it's something actually. I hate to. I my wife will be annoyed if she if she hears this because she wouldn't want me even mentioning her in this. She's like leave me out of it. <laughs> she's not. She's she's the exact opposite of me in in being having zero interest in uh, any kind of a public, <laughs> even being alluded to in this form like my wife. Right? Even I'm not even saying her name, but um, you know, but she's addicted to her device as well. So that so that we have at times we've we've tried to make this revol- resolution together, and quite honestly, she's crapped out faster than I have on sticking with it. So, um, so it is, in other words, there's more than one person involved in the, you know, in, in any attempt along these lines, both for the reason that we sometimes watch stuff together, but also um, it may prompt another conversation with her about, what do you think? Shall we try this again together? Mm -hmm. I'll be curious how that goes. (laughs) And one of the things that hit me in weaning myself off of these things is that a lot of people say I'm addicted to my phone or phones are addictive. And increasingly I realize the phone is a conveyor of um, there's people on the other side trying to figure out how to hook you. Yeah. And one of the, when you were, you were talking about, maybe it's not that much of a difference in power use, but I see a big correlation 
between things that pollute and things that have been made people addict us with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough to addict someone to broccoli or, you know, homegrown, home cooked food. Uh, Oreos, on the other hand, much easier. Yeah. Or salty, greasy, right? Yeah. It's addictive. And so the cell phones are, I forget what the internet uses, what percent of global power. It's something like 10%, I think, something sizable and growing. Then there's like H&M and Zara and fast fashion is like a huge polluter and very addictive. Mm-hmm. And that correlation, I feel like it's very difficult when I was, in, it, w- it was very difficult to see it when I was in it. Yeah, yeah. And then when I was out of it, I was like, oh man, it's very similar. Like, and then I look back at colonialism and things like, like what was driving the Atlantic slave trade? The, I mean, what were the material things? It was like coffee is fairly addictive, sugar, rum, fashion also. And yeah. so I haven't really tied these uh, things together that much. Cotton, which is a perfectly useful thing for making clothing. Um, but Anyway, yes, it was, it was a huge profit <laughs> is also an addiction. Yeah. And, and search for more profit and more power is also a, a, an addictive force, which was just as much a driver, right, as, as individual consumer goods. More so, I would say, on the part of the people who were really making this happen. Um, yeah. So given the extent that you looked into these things on, your, on the three episodes that I listened to, I'd be curious if that comes up. Let me know, because... I've, it's just something I've thought about. And usually when I talk to people, they don't engage. On, that's not one of the things that they engage on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our conversation, by the way, is reminding me, my, my friend, Chandrai Kumanika, who's in two, who worked with me, as you know, on two of our series uh, on Seen on Radio. He suggested this book and, and I read it recently. It's a book called Stolen Focus. I'm blanking on the author's name. Yeah, I know. Um, but it's really about... Um, it's a Brit, I think. Yuval Harari, not Yuval Harari, uh, Johan Harari. Har- yes. Johan Harari. Yeah. Johan Harari. Thank you. Yes. And it starts out seeming like it's about computers and social media and stuff like that. And he ends up broadening it to look at other things that affect um, our attention. That's what's really, that it's what it's really about is, is a kind of meditation and a research into are uh, where we put our attention and the various efforts to kind of corral it and control it and grab it from us. So for example, the fact that it was a design choice at some point that Facebook and Twitter and those other social media things would have what's called an infinite scroll. You know, in the early days, you could scroll down and you'd get to the bottom at some point. Now they Done. Yeah. they make sure that that will never happen. So um, anyway, it's just one example of the ways in which they, they have very uh, uh, assiduously designed things to hold your attention. And then obviously the other, the other really important thing is, is that they feed you the more inflammatory, inflammatory stuff because that holds our attention more. When we're, we are, when we're outraged, we tend to stick around for more. So, um, yeah, it's all, it's all very, it's all very useful. And he argues actually that it's, that it's the solution. Sure. Each of us can do our best to tear ourselves away, to discipline ourselves, to understand these things so that we can take charge of our, where our attention is going. But he argues that there ought to actually be systemic changes and rules and regulations and things like that to, to change the way these these technologies work, that that's, that's going to have a lot more effect than, than individuals trying to fight it. Anyway, it's, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I haven't gotten to that book of his, and I confess I didn't read his early book, but I watched his TED Talks and a lot of interviews of him because addic- addiction and our relationship with fossil fuels and what they, what they create for us is, is, to me, overwhelmingly addictive. And his understanding of it is, I think, very insightful and useful. And I think he's one of the people who says that the opposite of addiction is community. 
mm. and support. So I'm curious where he goes with that. And thank you for sharing uh, and enticing me to read more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hope to continue that part of the conversation with you uh, in, in future conversations. Also, one of the things I'd, I'd like to ask people is what was the emotional experience of doing this from not just in the moment of, of say, closing the lid, but from when you first decided to do it to uh, when you started planning, if there was any planning, when you shared it with your wife, different times of closing for different reasons, maybe if you reflected on it afterward. What was the emotional experience? Yeah. No, I can't say that it was particularly powerful either way, but I, I would say this, that, that I, I was at that moment that I would um, close the laptop. It felt good. And I was thankful at some kind of basic level in my gut, my chest <laughs> to have made that commitment so that, that, that I was going to do that. And that now I'm going to pick up my reading glasses and the book next to me. Uh, instead of that device that that felt good um so yeah i should i should really sit with that probably a little more and uh try to take a little more inspiration and impetus from that realization um yeah i guess that's what i would say how would you compare or so that's the moment you close it and maybe a second or two after then you get the book out and maybe you're enthralled in the book or engrossed in the book but how do you compare the emotional experience of reading a book that you've chosen to read versus back and forth, check email. Oh, wait, what about Facebook? Oh, wait, what about Twitter? Oh, wait, maybe an email came in. How's John B. one in one state versus another? Yeah, it is a different, it is a different experience. Um, yeah, uh, boy, it's hard to put into words, isn't it? it? It feels hard to put into words to me. But I am say, let's talk about the the Laura Engels Wilder book. Uh, I think it's called Prairie on Fire or Prairie Fire, something like that. But I'm transported to, you know, 1880s, Wisconsin, Minnesota, South Dakota, um, (laughs) because they kept moving around among those places. And, um, and I'm, and I'm there, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in one place. I'm with one group of people. I'm learning something. I'm my imagination has kicked in as I'm reading about these unbelievable struggles. It was like reading the book of Job, honestly, reading Laura Ingalls Wilder's life. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a very, it's a different, and it's, I would say a more nourishing experience than popping around from one news article to back to Twitter to et cetera. And I have gotten better. I mentioned email, but actually I don't like, there are certain things this, this has been, I mean, many years, I think for so many of us, right. That there's been a certain awareness about this kind of thing. Like I used to be, I used 20 years ago. If if you emailed me at 9 PM, you would likely get a reply that night. I don't do that anymore. I might glance at my email and see that email, but oftentimes I don't even do that anymore. I've really gotten better about, you know, trying to keep my email. I absolutely do not answer emails on vacation. I might look at them. I might glance in there and see what's there and hit reply and save it on the ones that, you know, and delete anyway. But so it's not so much email at night usually, but it is those other things. But yeah, that's a, that's, that is not, I would say, whatever you would say about it, it's generally not very nourishing, even though I may, it may also include reading an article in the Atlantic or in the New York times or something that, that, that I want to read. And that tells me things I want to know. Overall, the experience I would say is significantly less um, edifying and nourishing than, than reading a book for a couple of hours. So I'm, I'll say a bit about the meta talk here about the theories that I, it's pretty common, that type of difference. And it really polluting, things that pollute 
tend to have that, they're not that fulfilling, but they feel desperately necessary in the moment. Mm-hmm. And then after the laptop screen is closed or the plane takes off and you're not on it, then, or I'll put it in the first person, when, you know, just after I decided to uh, go for that year without flying, my sister tells me she's got, she got round trip tickets to Tokyo with her family. Would I care to join her? It's 800 bucks. I'm like, that's really cheap. So my first thought was, I'll start the year after I get back. And I thought, wait a minute, am I trying to live by my values or not? And I have not regretted in any way not going that trip to Tokyo. I may never be in Tokyo again in my life. And I could have gone, you know, I can afford 800 bucks, no problem. Yeah. And it would have been with my, my nieces and nephew and my sister and her husband and, you know, like them all. And, but it was also the first step of getting clean. And I think that, you know, the, the method of what I'm doing is to, well, to me, it's a mindset shift from the first experience. And then I'm, I'm not going to follow up with you like I do with like a corporate client, but then it's a process of continual improvement that continues after that. Mm. Each thing leads to the next. So for me, you know, now I'm, I'm in my fourth month of being off the grid and it's this crazy experience that even the solar panels broke. So I, I don't even have solar panel, solar power now. So the cheat that I allow is I can replug, I can charge my computer at NYU and my phone, but nothing else. Okay. So I haven't cooked anything. It's all been salads and, and uh, sprouts and, and fermented stuff and things that I do at home, which is August vegetables are delicious, even more so now. Right. And, but I think that people, to talk to people about living more sustainably goes nowhere if they're addicted if they're in the throes of addiction. Yeah. But I think that if enough people, especially people who are influential, have these little changes, I think it could permeate, uh, percolate, um, propagate. Could propagate, permeate, and percolate, perhaps. (laughs) All of the above. Yeah. No, I think it's really important conversations here. I think it's uh, it's really important what you're doing and just getting pushing people to look at these things and think about these things and figure out where they can make changes. I think it's good, good work. <laughs> Thank you. I take that as encouragement and it's uh, it's lonely work. So every bit of, of feedback like that is encouraging and keeps me going. Although I anticipate that at some point it'll flip to the other side. And, and I talked to this woman in, in Sweden who hasn't flown for a lot longer than I haven't. And she talked about how there were these two articles that came out by Swedish um, celebrities. And roughly around then, it, at least among her community, it switched from having to justify not flying and flying being normal to not flying being normal and having to justify flying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So one, one more question about the experience is uh, you did a, your wife was intimately involved with it. Did it affect that relationship? Did it affect other relationships? Did you tell other people about it or did you notice anything about other people's behavior or anything like that? No, I, it really, uh, I would say no to, to all of those questions. I don't, it didn't affect my relationship with my wife other than that, you know, kind of good natured, oh, well, you signed me up for this too. Well, it just meant that she turned, turned to, her, to her iPad while I shut my, my laptop, right. That we were watching together, but no. And, and I did, it's not something I really actually that I talked about with other people, to be honest. So great. I don't have an interesting answer for you on that. Oh, well now I have to ask about that. What about the moment when she stayed on and you went off? Was there an emotional experience in that? I, I think it would be the same answer I gave before, which is it felt good to me to, to be signing off and picking up the book. So I was okay with that. Yeah. I would love to go on, but I want to be sensitive to time. And uh, is there is there anything to cover before wrapping up? Well, I, tell me if this is going to if there's a if there's a relatively um, abbreviated way that we could use you 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 mentioned patriarchy, you know, or if that's going to be another half hour, then I guess I would prefer not to to go there. But if it's something that if there's just a I don't know a couple of questions or something, I'd be down for. Oh, to ask about it. it it could easily be like 30 hours <laughs> yeah right, right uh well 
I'm, think, I'm trying to think of what you said last time about original sin and starting it all. Because um, mm. another way of looking at it is, and, and pick up on this or not, uh, up to you, is that but certainly there are uh, learning goes wilder. When I talk about people who live on farms, there's a division of labor that happens mm. based on physical differences. And some would speculate that, see, now I, I just read um, The Dawn of Everything. I don't know if you've read it or heard of it, but it talks about all these different, see, now I'm, 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 my mind is too awash with too many things, but th- this book is fantastic. And it talks about how in what we call the agricultural revolution was a much richer experience that belies that there was an agricultural revolution. And there are so many different cultures in, living in so many different ways that what I was about to say, I hadn't expressed it since reading the book. And I was about to say, well, you know, we went through this process, but no, I don't think, I don't think, I think there were so many different processes that ha- happened of how uh, we went. For, and I mean, if we look at hunter gatherer tribes or nations before, there's probably a huge variety of those. And then they went through a huge variety of transformations into, so now I can't ask anything without being uh, like the sweater becoming completely unraveled. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. It might be too much to take on today. Um, but I think what you're referring to, right. Did I say that, and this is something that has come up multiple times on our podcast, both when we did um when we when we did the the race series and when we did the men's series the patriarchy series and and then this latest season on climate where we were kind of tracing this history of these various kinds of um divisions and hierarchies right and structures that western culture in particular created but not just western culture obviously when you're talking about something like patriarchy right but that patriarchy seems to have been the earliest of those major kind of assertions of dominance by one group of people over, over another. And it's half the population asserting dominance over the other half. Uh, it happened. Thousands, there's no separating us. Thousands happened thousands of years before, um, before race, as we know, it was thought up by anybody um, race in the sense that, you know, there are three or four or five groups of humanity and they're distinctive and those those groups really mean something and some are smarter and better than others, right? That that was did not exist until about 500 years ago. So um, yeah, five or 600 years ago. So, so right. So patriarchy is much, much older than that. And that's, that is telling. And I think it's, and it's easy in our focus on, race and and for that matter on our relationship with um, the rest of the natural world or with our you know our ecological way of being in the world to to kind of gloss over the importance of patriarchy in those in those other hierarchical systems and, and forms of oppression um, in part because it's because I think it is old and it's so much you know, there's a there's a tendency to both recognize it and take it for granted at the same time, but also to just forget that it's that it possibly kind of set the pattern in a certain way. Um, because yes, if you can decide, as we said, and we said this in Amy Westervelt and I in season five of Seen on Radio, we had some lines that went like this. You know, that if you can, if you decide as a so-called male that I can dominate and control and oppress this person who is supposed to be the most, you know, starting with say my wife, who's supposed to be the most important person in my life. Then I can do the same with people who are, I deem to be different from me uh, and with species that I deem to be different from me and that are over there and that are less than me. Um, So that that, that's a repeating pattern that gets applied in, in different ways and to different entities. But the patriarchy seems to have been the original. People, people often talk about race, racism, white supremacy as the, the original sin of, the, of this country. And I think that's fair. <laughs> well, capitalism, my God. <laughs> but anyway, yes, patriarchy is, is, is more original than, 
than racism, it seems. I'm laughing because original is like usually described as like, oh, it's original. It's like <laughs> yeah. something yes. you tout. Yes, right. Well, I, I will give you a challenging thing that in your, I'm trying to think of an example, but I think there were times when you would talk about, um, here's how it sticks in my head and it may be off. So sorry if it's not well thought through, but a woman might do something that people would describe as sexist and you would describe it as internalized sexism. But if a man did it, it was the man's choice. It felt like the agency was, there was agency given to men that wasn't given to women. That uh, is it, to me, if there's a system that it caught, catches everyone up in it, we're all st stuck in that system. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I entirely understand the distinction you make. I don't suppose you can think of an example what comes to mind is in the race one, there was a, um, you were walking through West Philly with a bike and a box mm -hmm. and a 13 year old boy, something like 13 year old um, pulled a knife on you. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've had knives pulled on me and I've been mugged in, in um, North uh, Germantown. And so you said, what could he do? I mean, he's in a situation where he's got no, you know, anyone in that situation might do something like that. Oh, were you, so you're, were you feeling like we're letting him off the hook too much? Well, no, on the contrary, I look at the, I look at things that way as well. Mm -hmm. But when you would quote a, a white supremacist talking about, um, not even a white supremacist. Oh, okay. A lot of your definitions of whiteness came from racists and. Right. Does someone grow up saying I'm going to be racist or is someone like taught, like let you be racist or are they caught up in a system as well? And is it difficult for them to get out of it? Yes. In which case yeah. is the problem those people or the system? Yeah. Oh, I think, yeah, absolutely. The problem is the system. Absolutely. Yeah. And if it seemed like if, if I'm understanding you right, if it seemed like at times we kind of moralized a bit much or, um blamed people. I, I think I yeah, I mean I do get frustrated. I'm thinking of, for example, in seeing white in in a, the white affirmative action episode, the part 13, where there's a gentleman who has just sat through a two-hour talk on the history of government handouts to white people going back 400 years on this continent. And after, after the talk, he just kind of, oh, well, you know, I, yeah, didn't have much effect on me. And, you know, racism, yeah, racism and prejudice go in every direction. And Chris Rock once said something insensitive about Asians too. And anyway, so, so I, I get frustrated at my fellow white people who, who seem to put up really serious <laughs> um, deflector shields against being educated or against seeing the way things are. But it, and I do think that we are all, all of us, myself, absolutely included, are, are subject to, uh, you know, to motivated reasoning. And we let ourselves off the hook and are very much inclined to, to do so. So that is, that is a function. That's, that's a piece of the puzzle. But yeah, we're, we are all caught up. And that was the, you know, that we talked about the very, very overused metaphor of the fish swimming in the water and asking what's water. Um, white supremacy is, is the water we swim in and, and it's a lifelong education to learn to see it. For me, this is very nuanced to talk about these things. Yeah. And it's very easy for someone to hear what they expect you to say, as opposed to what you are trying to say. And in my case, I have to say things a few times before it comes out right because the nuance is, is subtle. I mean, like, you know, a musician has to play the piece a few times too to get the notes right and they have the notes right in front of them. Yeah. Also in sustainability, one of the things I realized is that there's huge amounts of pollution in the world. And if I look back at the people who made the choices to drill the oil and so forth, if I knew then, if I didn't know then what things I do know now, I probably would have made similar choices. And 
see, I don't, I don't think it's letting them off the hook because I think today, it, if we see that they, what they did, no one, anyone would have made choices like that. I think that makes it easier for people today who are also choosing things to say, look, it, I, people feel really guilty and feel a lot of shame. And I don't think that is warranted. Mm. Mm. And I think people feel like I judge them a lot. And many times I do, but not in the way that they think. Because yeah. in the way that they think, I'm, I think I'm actually, I believe I'm much more compassionate and empathetic and understanding and supportive. I want to be supportive. But I think when they hear me talking about not flying, they hear me judging them. But I wasn't flying to pollute. Right. I was flying to make the world a better place. You know, of course, I was enjoying it too. But, you know, it's cultures to be exchanged and cuisines to be explored and things like that and languages to, to share. And so how to communicate the balance between someone's personal responsibility, which people are making the choices they make, but within a system, uh, what's his name? Uh, w. Edwards Deming, a big hero of mine. I think he said it. Um, a bad system will beat a good person every time. Something like that. Yeah. A, a kind of version of culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and it echoes, I was talking about Hari in his book, uh, right? That uh, related to things like the addiction to social media, that that's, that he's persuaded that it's the system that it's just too much to overcome for most people to do it individually. Right. So yeah, I, I, that's, that's really right. And I think it's right about racism too, but I think then it becomes, yeah. And this could be a very long conversation, but it gets into things too, like leadership and education. And, you know, I, I think it's absolutely tragic. Isn't, isn't, doesn't do it justice. You know, that Donald Trump was elected president from that standpoint alone, that we had someone who just unleashed so much, like just told told people your racism is okay, and let it let that flag fly. And to me, it's not it's not adequate to say, well, it was there anyway, so it was just being bottled up, and then he just unleashed, and it would have come out. I don't think it, it doesn't didn't have to come out. You know, if we had if we had a society in which it's if we continued to have a society which, you know, I think in 2014, a lot of us would have said we'd, we'd had a society in which certain forms of white supremacy were kind of limited to the fringes and were seen as pathetic and not really acceptable that are, that are now being spouted by members of Congress, you know, that that didn't have to happen. And if we'd had another 50 years of leadership that's setting a, an example in which racism is unacceptable and pathetic and something to be, you know, looked down on. We didn't have to come to the place that we're in right now. So uh, yeah, but it is, it's endlessly complicated, those those interactions of the individual and the society and, and what makes change and yeah, endlessly interesting to, to, to contemplate. There's something you said at the beginning of that, that I wanted to for me is a big deal is that um, you said people look at the system and it's really hard to change it. And I think a lot of people, certainly myself at the beginning, I felt like, well, government should do something about this. Corporations should do something about this. For example, all this noise pollution. <laughs> and so certainly for me at the beginning, I felt like there's big Governments and corporations and institutions, they should fix this. But they're, for one thing, they emerged from these systems and they benefit from these systems. And so they sustain what sustains them, sustains the systems and, and, and vice versa. And so what feels to me deeply unfair, and when, as I said, I think my parents say, said life was fair. What feels unfair is that I feel it, it seems practically, if we want those institutions to change, we have to do it. And it sucks that we're the ones who are getting addicted. We're the ones who are faced with like, you walk in the supermarket and it's all do fall over. You know, it's all this advertising trying to get, and, and it's very difficult to resist that. And yet, if we don't, it will increase. And so if someone says, well, it shouldn't be, it, 
like people are constantly pointing out to me how BP did the thing with, um, they promoted personal carbon footprint to measure that. And most people's reaction is they're trying to deflect from them. And well, maybe they are, but the point is not to reject that just because they, it's still, yes, measure your carbon footprint. Don't only, not only you, also them, but not, but if we don't act ourselves, nothing will change or rather it will increase. And it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel like we can actually make a difference. Historically, there are role models of people and, and, and organizations and communities that did make differences despite it not looking plausible. And, but we, to me, it's like that, yeah, I have to. And so, yeah. One of the things I'm trying to share is that, is that it turns out actually when, when I started, I'm actually, oh, I wish I'd started earlier. This is enjoyable. The food's more delicious. The relationships get more, you know, less intermediated by Twitter and more intermediated, intermediated by touch and smell and, and eye contact in person, which I think most people don't get. But that's what I want to call attention. This difference between if, yeah, you can't make a difference by yourself. Yeah, they should change, but it's not going to happen, except if we do start. Right. And what I hear you saying is that the absolute, absolutely the wrong thing to do is to say, we need systemic change. And therefore, there's nothing for me to do until except to wait for that systemic change. And in the meantime, maybe I can vote and write letters and whatever to push that systemic change, but I don't have to change. Yeah. I'm not going to change anything about the way I live personally because we need systemic change, right? That, that, that is a counterproductive. Yeah. Uh, and if in race, no one would say, <laughs> I can't change the system. Therefore I'll keep being racist. Yeah, that's right. Cause I think people don't benefit themselves personally from being racist. Maybe some do. I know what I know. But I think people feel like they benefit from pollution, from polluting behavior. And so they're like, this, this personal benefit, I think it twists us up inside. Yeah, I don't want to give it up. Yeah. Well, we haven't done a good job of, of keeping the time. <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't stop talking. Uh, I, I'm happy to keep going. But uh, how are you? Do you want to wrap up? And Yeah, I, I'd like to wrap up if we can. Yeah, I actually do. But I, I know, obviously, I'm engaged too. But yeah, I'd like, I'd like to wrap up. So I asked before anything to say before closing, uh, anything now to say before closing. <laughs> I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to say no this time. <laughs> John Bewin, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Josh, thanks for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future. Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.